you know, I think <laughs> flexibility and innovation in this time is critical. Um, don't rely on uh, necessarily IT folks to help during this time because they are being stretched and pulled in really, really important places as well. And so a lot of it is trial and error and flexibility and planning. I'm Siddha Yarlagadda and I'm an internist at the Houston VA. I'm Jay Jennings and my background is in public health with an emphasis on quality improvement. We wanted to bring you a real-time podcast on telehealth implementation. This podcast is sponsored by the VA Quality Scholars and the Baylor Institute for Quality Improvement and Patient Safety. On this episode of Innovation in the Time of COVID-19, we'll be talking to Dr. Carrie Rubenstein and Dr. Sarah Babineau of Swedish Medical Center in Seattle about utilizing telehealth technology for inpatient visits and in the long-term care setting. We'll go ahead and let them introduce themselves. My name is Carrie Rubenstein. I'm a family medicine physician and geriatrician at Swedish Medical Center in Seattle. I direct the Geriatric Medicine Fellowship there, and I'm just really pleased to be here with you today. And I'm Sarah Babino. I work with Carrie at Swedish Family Medicine First Hill Residency Program in the Geriatrics Fellowship. Um, where I do mostly the nursing home work. And I also work for a PACE program, um, mostly doing home visits on frail elderly in Seattle. So thanks for inviting us. No worries, thanks a lot. So how do you guys define telehealth and what we're gonna talk about? You know, at its core, telehealth brings the care to the patient, you know, instead of the traditional setting where the patient needs to go somewhere to access the care. But in, the, in this pandemic, you know, the key feature of telehealth is really to be able to bring the care to the patient and to mitigate the effects of spreading the virus um, and to um, preserve our limited supply of uh, PPE. And then, you know, I found that on top of that for older adults, telehealth allows like a touch point with a trusted medical provider during this really scary and uncertain time. And like that relationship and that connection uh, through telehealth is really valuable. Are you guys seeing any uh, regulations in, in patient care that are helping you guys facilitate um, better care and quality of care as far as uh, telehealth goes or with geriatric patients specifically? As of March 6th, um, with the CMS guidance, uh, the Coronavirus Preparedness and Response Supplementation Appropriate Appropriations Act, that's a mouthful, um, this basically allowed telehealth to be used in pretty much all of the settings we take care of older adults, including the inpatient setting, the nursing home, um, uh, and the clinic. And we, uh, we can use billing codes uh, that we would otherwise use face-to-face -face because of this uh, regulate, these regulations that were developed. Are you guys uh, seeing any infrastructure issues by any chance now uh, switching to telehealth so much and relying on that more so than, you know, face-to-face? -face? Again, I'll, I'll speak to the inpatient experience during our consultations. The, the real limitation is the device that's used. And so thus far, we've used the device of a resident physician, personal device, um, a nurse on the floor, um, those are the two we've used most uh, commonly, but we've recognized that we really need to get 
a device that's very specific for the team or for the, the team providing the care. And so we're planning on deploying a device to, to stay in the hospital um, so that that device can be the specific device that's left with the, the patient, perhaps with the help of an aide in the hospital, as opposed to the resident physician having to stand there the entire time with their own personal device. So that was one barrier, one complexity that we found. Carrie, can you sort of speak to a, um, a total patient encounter in the inpatient side so we can sort of understand the technology and the infrastructure and sort of what the team is? For a person who had been admitted with a failure to thrive picture, um, basically unable to care for himself in his home, um, and he came in after a fall and found down um, and he was medically stabilized, but the consultation was for discussion about transitions in care, <laughs> particularly with the um, uh, limitations of our discharge these days. And so the, the resident physician contacted our geriatric medicine fellow and said, we have a consult for you. A uh, fellow decided on a time um, I joined as well um, because the supervision, um, the supervision uh, still suggests that the attending physician, um, if possible, is is on the video call as well, and uh, and they set a time to do this. We we also included an interpreter, so this was super complex, but it worked through Zoom, and so we had four of us on the call. Um, and, um, and then we kind of worked through sort of our typical, um, consult assessment. Um, we, uh, did some evaluation of, uh, cognition, some screening for delirium, um, and, um, it was fairly, we tried not to make it too long so it's not overwhelming to the patient. And, you know, like everything in geriatrics, getting um, input from his people, which was his sister in this case, was really important. And so instead of bringing her onto the call, the fellow communicated with her after afterwards. Um, we did a limited physical exam. Um, it wasn't uh, terribly relevant in this case, but we were able to um, especially comment on his uh, affect and his engagement and his attention, which was critical. Um, and then, uh, and then he seemed to uh, connect and and sort of enjoy the interaction. You know, these folks are alone in the hospital, right? They're not getting visitors, and so <laughs> any kind of engagement um, seems uh, often to be welcome. I think a lot of the question is around people using it for personal devices in the hospital is there's a lot of, you know, am I going to take it on my family? How do I clean my phone? Um, I think people are very hesitant to sort of use their own personal device. Have you guys, has there been any push to sort of use a, a communal device? I mean, there would have to be a lot of talk between house cleaning and the device and nursing and sort of, do you guys have a more long-term plan for, I don't know, drilling iPads into the wall or something? Uh, we have a, a plan that does not include drilling the iPad into the wall, but rather um, having, the, we have a, a resident and fellow workroom, and the plan is to get a device that stays in the resident and fellow workroom, and the person who uses the device is responsible for cleaning it, and then the person who uses it next 
would clean it again before they used it. Um, and so getting some of those protocols. But the cool thing about the what we're hoping to do with that device is not only use it for our consults, um, but also use it for older adults in particular that don't have their own device to be able to communicate with their families because their families are not allowed to visit. And this is a big, big issue, especially from a delirium and dementia perspective, but, but also just for um, the fear that families have, whether the person in the hospital has COVID or not, they're in the hospital and it's the, the visiting is limited. And so we're hoping to use that same device to help um, our, the patients on our service uh, connect to their families with with a face-to-face -face video um, option if they don't have one themselves. Sarah, can you tell us about your experience with telehealth in the long-term care world? Yeah, we we work in a nursing home that's we've we've been working at for several years. So they're very supportive of our training program. We have second and third year residents go every two months to see a, a, their own patients, one or two patients, and then we have geriatrics fellows that are there twice a week outside of pandemic time. Um, so when this all started, we um, they had already been thinking about telehealth, just given the fears of COVID and long-term care facilities and how fast it can spread. Um, and they actually have several um, tablet devices. Um, initially, they were using FaceTime with our providers, um, and now we're using more Zoom. Um, technology. Um, and so they've loaded these facility devices with um, those two um, uh, means of communication. And we just, we have, there's a couple of champion, um, telehealth champions at the facility side where, who we coordinate with in terms of scheduling our fellows and our residents um, visits. So we'll, we'll email them we're going to be there on Wednesday. Can you please help us facilitate an appointment with such and such? Um, and then they oftentimes it's a nurse that's in the room with the resident of the nursing home um, that helps can help with a targeted physical exam or can help coordinate with the device. Um, so, so far, I mean, we've only been doing this for a couple of weeks now, but so far it's been successful and the feedback we've gotten from the facility as they feel supported by us that we're still present, even if not physically present. Sarah, can you walk us through a patient encounter from, say, scheduling to delivery of the care, especially in these older adults? Can you maybe talk about the utilization of personal devices versus a communal device, whether you have to clean it in between? Yeah. Um, I will give you an example of one of our second-year residents has a youngish woman with some mobility impairments. Um, she was scheduled, our residents are scheduled for quarterly. We call it quarterly visits, it's every two months visits. Um, and so I knew what day she was coming and I emailed the nurse, uh, there's a nurse manager on this unit in particular and said, you know, Dr. So-and-so will be there, uh, well, is free on Wednesday afternoon, can you please coordinate an appointment with this, you know, we'll call her Miss Jones. Um, and so uh, the nurse case manager and the resident emailed back and forth about which platform the resident preferred to use, because not all residents have iPhones. Um, this resident had a, an Android, so she preferred to use Zoom. And she provided her contact information to the nurse case manager. And they arranged a time. This is all over email. 
And then at the allotted time, the nurse case manager went into this um, nursing home, Miss Jones' room, and sat with her um, with the device um, while the resident asked questions, the resident physician asked questions. So they have, I don't know how many devices they have at this facility, but they have shared devices. So the residents of the nursing home don't need their own, but they do decontaminate it in between visits. And they bring it to the, the places where they need to be. And okay. so I think that this, this resident physician, I know it's hard, resident, Mrs. Jones and the resident physician, um, there was something, some physical exam finding that she wanted the nurse case manager to look at. Um, and so the nurse case manager was able to lay eyes on it and say, you know, this is what I'm seeing and, and show her on the video. Um, and then they concluded their visit and, and left in it. I think it went well. <laughs> so have you done like keep in touch with families? I know a lot of these older patients, they aren't, they're not allowing visitors. Any mm -hmm. sort of, have you guys used it in this sort of social work, palliative care, family discussion? Can you sort of speak to that? Because I think a lot of providers, we're so used to picking up the phone or, and we're telling people to come back into the hospital to basically have face-to-face -face conversations. And I think we can both speak to a phone-to-phone -phone conversation. It's not the same thing as, you know, as communicating information to a family, you know, in person. Have you utilized the technology sort of as a provider to family? Yes. And I think this is actually, I had a, a meeting the other day with a patient and an adult family home owner and a guardian. And the guardian was like, this is so great. I wouldn't usually be at your visit, how helpful that is. But I'll tell you, I have a, um, an older gentleman in an adult family home, um, which for people who don't know are small home-like settings where um, people get 24-hour care. We have quite a few of them in Washington State. I know it's not ne necessarily national. Um, but he has the, one of the caregivers in the home and now another resident who wanders um, is positive for COVID. So yesterday we had a meeting, myself, his nurse case manager, his daughter, who's a very smart woman, she works at UW, and the adult family homeowner to talk about one ways to try to prevent my patient from getting the, um, from getting COVID kind of provide some support and education to the adult family homeowner because it's a small setting. So if you're taking care of four men with dementia with behaviors, it's hard to figure out what the best mitigation strategies are. But then also talk to the daughter about what, what would happen if her dad gets sick? What would she want? Would she want us to send him to the hospital? Would she, what, what are kind of her goals for him? And then we were able to lay eyes on him and see that he was up walking to get milk, which is his favorite thing and was look, looking okay. Um, but I think it was like a pretty um, easy to arrange call and it was actually really nice to be on um, with all, all four of us kind of coming up with a plan, a plan of attack. We're in this changing time of telehealth kind of becoming the hot topic, getting this communal device, I don't know, from a buy-in standpoint or I don't know, we heard from other people, just everyone's trying to buy iPads now to basically, like the supply chain is a little bit, you know, down. Can you give us an, what sort of the barriers you have from a, like a communal multiple device scenario? You know, I'll, I'll say we, 
I think for the most part to this point we've used devices that have already been around but but now that we're trying to sort of expand the services and maybe improve the processes now we're figuring we need more and I think we are going to run into those problems of supply chain um, and longer waits um, but um, I have found too that there are people looking to contribute in a lot of different ways and that access to technology is one way that people can contribute and um, and so you know we're currently working through the foundation of our hospital and there's a donor that wants to contribute to to this cause and so we're looking to uh, how to quickly implement that you know the, the whole name of the game here is quickly implementing projects that would have otherwise taken weeks and months and maybe even years in like more like days and so uh, I think there's lots of opportunity. So as physicians that are like using telehealth in real world time right now, do you guys have any tips or advice for physicians who haven't yet used it, but are going to have to need, are going to need to use it really soon? You know, I think <laughs> flexibility and innovation in this time is critical. Um, don't rely on uh, necessarily IT folks to help during this time because they are being stretched and pulled in really, really important places as well. And so a lot of it is trial and error and flexibility and planning. And so preparing and planning all of the parties involved uh, is probably the most important thing from my perspective. Kara, can you walk us through, when you have this original conversation, I'm a consultant, I'm gonna do telehealth. How do you have that conversation? Is it at a leadership level? Is it at the medicine Caroline level, or is it you call the resident team? You're like, hey, we're telehealth approved. We're gonna do it. Yes, um, really, the the latter. Um, basically, I think every health system is um, in the in the nation right now is preparing for the surge. If the surge is not already there, their focus is on preparing the emergency rooms, their acute care units, their intensive care units for um, uh, you know, unthinkable numbers and acuity of patients. And so that is happening. Um, and then there's another level where people still need care for routine issues like delirium, right? Um, and uh, disposition, and which is of course even more complicated now. And so, you know, I think that, um, most, uh, I'm guessing, most administrators and most health systems are um, are aware that the the regulations have been put into place to allow this to happen, um, and then are counting on their uh, physicians and other healthcare providers to carry that care out. And so we, um, you know, we 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 did get a little bit of a head start in terms of thinking about this because of Seattle being the original epicenter in the U.S. Um, but it, you know, it, we just, um, the, the dis, you can't think about it too long. This can't go up through multiple levels. You just have to start doing it. Absolutely. And healthcare is very, very interprofessional. So you have nurses and physicians and you have pharmacists and, you know, social workers. How have other uh, people responded to telehealth? You know, I'll just mention that one of the other services through our fellowship is an interprofessional geriatric assessment clinic. And we had our first um, geriatric assessment, and this is in the ambulatory outpatient setting. We had our first geriatric assessment done through Zoom this week. And on the call was myself and a fellow, a geriatric medicine fellow, 
um, a, a psychology grad student and a, a social worker. And, um, and we were able to provide all of us together the care um, uh, to the patient um, uh, on uh, using the Zoom platform uh, technology. And uh, it, was, it was fabulous. We were able to also do, um, uh, we were able to uh, have some one-on-one -on -one with each of the professionals and then um, have the rest of us be sort of meeting on a different um, device to sort of pre-game it. But I think there's an incredible amount of innovation and opportunity, um, and particularly in the in a interprofessional setting that we do, um, I think, so well in geriatrics. Can you guys talk a little bit about care transition from the hospital? How are we, how, what is your guys' experience? You've been going through COVID for a lot longer than we have here in Houston. What is your sort of experience about sending people how do we really facilitate these? And especially now where we're seeing these patients over telehealth. Even in our region still, I think there's a lot of different opinions and different uh, um, regulations or requirements that are being put on different facilities. Um, and I know that um, facilities are trying, basically the first goal of skilled nursing facility is to prevent getting their first COVID case at all costs. And so um, including kind of not taking new admissions, whether they're COVID or not. And, um, and so then, you know, what happens is there's no place for people to go. And so I think there's a lot of possibility, but even in Seattle, where we've been going through this for even for, for longer, to my understanding, there is no COVID only sniff, although I know it's been talked about as a place for people with COVID who are convalescing to go to. And I think that's the intention of perhaps some of the field hospitals or facilities that are being um, uh, being sort of built and um, and built right now. In fact, uh, the city or the actually the state bought a shuttered nursing home this week um, to um, to to reopen it. Hopefully, in the next couple of weeks, I believe for this very reason. Maybe Sarah can talk because she has some interaction with some other facilities just about what facilities are doing in terms of taking admissions. But, but from my perspective, what I've seen in the hospital is that some people are actually going home when they have, would otherwise have gone to a SNF because that is, or they're staying in the hospital, which is even more unfortunate because they have nowhere for them to be discharged to. Yeah, I don't know. I was at a nurse, another nursing home last week and was asking the admissions person there what they were doing. And they're, I think, I think most people that work in long-term care identify that there are people that need them <laughs> and they do feel that drive to help, but also the fear of something happening like what happened in our area. Um, so I think there's just a lot of screening and I think some facilities are requ requesting COVID testing prior to accepting them. Um, and then I think a lot of them are putting them on like, I mean, most facilities have all their residents on COVID monitoring anyways, temperature checks and respiratory checks and speedy um, isolation if anything develops. But I think, I think the other thing we've seen is that people are trying to get we're trying to get our patients out of skilled nursing facilities sooner to free up beds. So I think it is a, a 
work in progress. I don't know that we have any good answers here yet. I'll mention that I did read about a um, nursing home in West Virginia that had uh, a case or two and decided to test everyone and were able to test everyone. That's a real limitation as we know. And they had um, a, a number of people test positive that had absolutely no symptoms. Um, and they had, I think, 20 to 30 people test positive, positive in the facility, but they were able to test everyone, the, including the people who stayed there and the staff, and then isolate the people who were positive away from the people who were not positive at the time. Again, you're assuming this is, uh, your test is, is as accurate as it can be, but, um, but they were able to do that without sending the folks out, which I thought was really impressive. Yeah, or one of our fellows asked this morning about, we have a, a lady in the dementia unit at our nursing home who had a fever this morning and we we're sending off testing. And she was commenting that, that they're in the long-term care world, there has been some conversation about testing everyone in a facility. Um, we are not doing that yet, but it would be a, an interesting conversation to have. And I think everyone's kind of struggling to do this in the inpatient, the long-term care, because it is not our natural uh, way we deliver care. So it's great to sort of hear what other people are doing so we can sort of model ping ideas off of each other. Thanks a lot. For more information, please contact facts at va.gov. That's V-A-Q-S at V-A-Gov. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the author's own and do not reflect the views of Baylor College of Medicine, the Department of Veteran Affairs, or the United States government.